phone or whatever you use these days and if you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 I also encourage you to uh, have Mark chapter 10 also available we are going to look at uh, the verses in Mark chapter 10 uh, very specifically because this passage is referring to that this morning as um, we begin this um, this sermon, I will tell you that this is the one, one thing that probably causes me more grief than any other subject, um, and uh, you may not like what I have to say. I just challenge you, just look at the Bible. I don't believe I'm telling you anything that the Bible doesn't say. So that's where I believe that. So now you know that I'm going to be talking about re- divorce and remarriage because that is one of those subjects um, you can't get around. It is all over the place. It is something. Here's what I want to tell you. And uh, I have been misunderstood in this direction. There's no doubt anybody that knows me knows I take a stand that I believe is the only biblically viable and consistent stand. Uh, there are a lot of other stands, but uh, they they lose track along the way and will not stand the test of all of the scripture. First of all, all actions that we take, all words that we say, anything we do has consequences. That's good and that's bad. For example, the end of the book of Deuteronomy, three chapters worth give us the concept of obedience brings blessing And disobedience brings a curse. In other words, everything we do has a continuation that goes with it. Number two, all people are valuable. You know what? Truth of the matter is, I do care. But for this purpose, I don't care what your circumstance is. I believe, I can say with a clear conscience, no matter who you are, what you've done, or where you've been, or where you are at this moment, it really doesn't matter to me. Hopefully, I treat you as a valuable person. You know why? Because I'm all great? Not a chance. Because we have a great Savior who is provided for everything. All sin is forgivable. All wrong choices, some of them aren't flat out sin, but all wrong choices are forgivable. You can move on. You can be, and God wants to use you in whatever your circumstances are. There's not a chance, of, uh, not a chance that he doesn't want to. Now, I understand that if you're in total rebellion against God and fighting against God, you're not, getting, you're not in the place where God can really use you. But the truth is... All sin is forgivable. For example, in Psalm 32, verse 5, it says this, I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. Notice the openness here. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of all my sin. Guilt has to do with iniquity and the punishment that goes with sin. He says, I've forgiven it all. By the way, you may be one of the people, and I just met another one this week, or I'm sorry, that was last week, who believed that God had forgiven them for something they had done a long time ago. And I looked them in the eye in my office and I said, and you haven't forgiven yourself. At that point, I have an automatic reaction to pull out the tissue box and put it on my desk. 
The answer was no. You know why? Because we don't really believe that God totally, completely forgives sin. And so we believe we have to punish ourselves. Now you may have done, all of us by the way, if you want to get rid of all the sinners in this congregation, guess what? You've got an empty pulpit to start with, and then if you're honest with yourself, you're out of here too. So believe me, all sin is forgivable. All of us have been there. I jokingly said, and I think somebody wrote a book by this uh, title, God uses cracked pots. Not crack pots. Okay, cracked pots. You know what? Every single one of us is a cracked pot. But he chooses by his mercy, by his grace, by his love, and particularly by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross to work in our lives. Now, Known unrepentant sin obviously breaks fellowship. Now, that's not my subject this morning. But the point is, there are people that believe somehow or the other because I take a strong stand of what I believe the Scripture says about remarriage and divorce and all that, that divorce or remarriage in particular is the unpardonable sin. No, it is not. It is not the unpardonable sin. That is rejecting the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's the only unpardonable sin because you're still heading to hell in spite of the conviction that God is bringing, God the Holy Spirit is bringing into your life. If you refuse to repent, refuse to trust Christ, He won't force you to do that. We are not universalists. One last thing before I move on. Is emotions get in this subject more than any other subject I know except for one. The other one has to do with our kids. Somebody walks up. My wife and I have had this happen. We've seen kids misbehave and walk up to the parents. By the way, I'm not talking about Garden Chapel. This is before I was even a pastor. And we just told the parents, uh, your kids, literally what they were doing, it was down in the Valley Bible Church, They were there was a whole pack of them. They were running, and then they would skid across the floor and make big black marks on the floor. So we went and told the parents. Wow, you would have thought we were the bad guys, and we got reamed out for an hour on the phone over that. You know, emotions get in there when, well, you're talking about, it wasn't my kids, they were only following the crowd. Did you ever hear that before? I've always thought this way, is yeah, my kids may have been following the crowd, but they were part of the crowd, and guess what, they're as guilty as the people that were leading it, and unfortunately sometimes, they were the ones leading it. By the way, so was I. So guess what? The point that we need to make here is God deals with flawed, sinful people. It's the only ones he has to deal with. Nobody else. But the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient. Will, I really like your, your choice of songs. There's power in the blood. Man, I could, well, I could sing that one. I, I didn't want that song to end, by the way. I, I wanted you to keep going there, but I guess there's only so many stanzas there. But, but the point is, God wants to use us. And he uses us in spite of ourselves. So with that as a background, because I get misunderstood with that, is we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, beginning at verse 10. And it says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but... If she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband 
and that the husband should not send his wife away. Notice it says to the married. The way that's written in Greek is simply this. It doesn't matter if this is your first and only marriage. It doesn't matter if your spouse had passed away and you remarried. It doesn't matter if you were divorced and remarried. You're married. You go, hold it a second, because people have said, well, God doesn't acknowledge a second or a third marriage or any of those things. That's not simply, simply not true. You all know John chapter 4. You know that's the woman at the well. Short story, short version of that story is Jesus said, go call your husband, bring your husband here. She answered correctly, I don't have a husband. He said, hey, you're right. You're right. You've had Five husbands, okay? Jesus acknowledged she was married and had five times and had five husbands. And the guy you're living with is not your husband. We would say they were shacked up, living together, whatever. The point is, he acknowledged that just because they were living in the same house, they weren't married, but five other times she was. So the truth of the matter is, while God is not a fan of that, it is acknowledged as such. That's just the way it is. He says, I give instruction to the married. Oh, not I, but the Lord, the master. Jesus has already given the instructions. This is where sometimes the the water gets muddy. I'm not going to do that this morning. I'm going to be blunt and straightforward. This is referring not to Matthew chapter 5, not to Matthew chapter 19, not to Luke chapter 16. Because only Mark chapter 10 has a provision where the wife should not leave the husband. All the others only talk about the husband. And when Paul is talking to a Gentile Roman audience, he quotes what Jesus said and wrote to the Romans. Only in Mark do you have the possibility of the wife divorcing, leaving departing from her husband. All the others are only talking about the husband. And so Paul has to be, because the context dictates uh, that he is talking about Mark chapter 10. And he says, I'm not giving you new instructions. These are the instructions that Jesus Christ has already given So if we're going to know where Paul is coming from to the Corinthian church, we need to go back. So if you want to turn to Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 1, uh, do that while I finish uh, describing something. Remember, when Jesus was talking and answering, he was not talking to a friendly audience. In fact, it was an antagonistic audience. The people that were asking him the questions about divorce and remarriage were the Pharisees. They had already rejected Jesus as a person. They had rejected his salvation. They didn't want anything to do with him. They themselves were unbelievers, except for a few of them that later on do become believers. But it is a basically an unbelieving crowd. Paul is taking that passage and he is now applying it directly first and foremost to the Corinthian church which was basically believers. So it it covers everything. It covers every situation that you can think of because uh, people ask questions like well what if this or what if that. It covers just about everything. 
but he is addressing it and writing it to a Gentile crowd, particularly the Romans. So let's look, and we're going to just quickly go through this because I'm going to cover a lot of territory this morning, is in Mark chapter 10, verse 1, it says, He went up from the regions of Judea beyond Jordan. Crowds gathered around him, and according to his custom, once more began to teach them. It doesn't say at this point what he was teaching. It is not what we're going to be looking at. He is just teaching. He has a sermon, he has a teaching, whatever it is. And some of the Pharisees, verse 2, came to Jesus testing him. Notice, they weren't saying, hey, we want to be more informed. We want to know what we should be thinking. They were there to try to trip him up. I'm not going to go into how we know that, but that's what it's saying. They were testing him, trying to trap him. And they began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. So he turns around as he is prone to do. Remember, Jesus always answers according to the intent of the heart. He knows more about the person than any of us would know because he can see inside and he can knows the motivation of the question, the attitude and all those kinds of things. So what does he do? He has a very good tactic. He asks them a question. He says to them, what did Moses command you? Because the Pharisees, remember, they were legalists. They said, we believe the Old Testament. They added to it, but they, we believe the Old Testament, you know. He says, okay, so what did Moses command you? Notice, and they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. If you're not familiar, and I'm not going back there today, but you can, that is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 24. In essence, Deuteronomy chapter 24, they were already divorcing their wives. They would basically walk in one morning and say, you're out of here, and she'd be gone. Moses said, this is not right. You're treating your, your wives like property. You can't do that. In fact, is if you divorce your wife, you have to give her a certificate. You have to make it official if that's what you're going to do. He was not telling them they should divorce their wives. He wasn't saying, divorce your wives. They weren't doing that at all. They were already doing that. But he said, if you divorce your wife, she goes out and marries somebody else, that guy dies or they split up, you can't go remarry her again because you've already divorced her. If you do that, that's an abomination. Go back and look it up. I'm not going to spend time uh, there. I've done that in the past. But Jesus gives him a new answer, a additional information from what they got from Moses. Jesus said to them, now notice he is telling them why Moses said what he said. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. You know what a hard-hearted person is like? You go, yeah, I'm married to one, or I know one, or my parents were one, or my kids are one, my neighbors. You know, a hard-hearted person is someone that is calloused. They don't care what you say. They don't care how they hurt you. They are impervious to pain. I used to have calluses. You've heard me say that before. I have none anymore. I have pastor hands now. Uh, you know, and, and, but, but calluses, you can do anything. I could, I could take a needle and poke through it. I could cut it and nothing happened. It has no feeling. He's saying, you didn't care what God had already said. What did God said? God said, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They become an indivisible unit. They didn't, want, they didn't like that. So he said, 
Moses allowed you to do that, but said you had to give a certificate, make it official, not because it was okay, but because you were hard-hearted. You didn't care what God had to say. That's just the bottom line. These are pretty blunt, straightforward things. He goes on in verse 6 to say this, But from the beginning God made them male and female. For this man, reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Doesn't mean they become one person, but they are indivisibly united together. They become one unit, a new family unit. Remember, when you go back to Genesis chapter 2, and I I did this when I taught through uh, Genesis, when you go back, the word join means to be glued or cemented together. I used to do a lot of woodworking. When I was a part-time pastor, I did custom woodworking and restoring antiques and stuff like that. If I glued two things together, here's what I expected. You could break that joint. But if you broke that joint, it won't break on my glue. It'll break on either side of it because the glue joint is stronger than the wood itself. That's the process that's here. God inseparably puts two people together. Glue cements them together. He said, that's the way it's been from the beginning. And then Jesus takes it a step further. And I do this in every Marriage ceremony, I do. I make this declaration. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In fact, is it's interesting, I never tell people that come into my office and say, will you marry me? I never say, yeah, I'll marry you right away. Including my own kids. I'll say, you come in, I'll counsel with you, and I'll talk with you, and then I'll decide. Okay. Sometimes it's an easy deal. Sometimes I have to say no, and I have. Why? Because one of the questions I ask is this. Is this something that you believe is permanent? That this is for life? Or is this just a temporary kind of thing or you're kind of going in this half-hearted? Nobody has ever told me they're going to half-hearted, by the way. Nobody has ever actually told me that. But I want to know that because I know what the Scripture says. The moment they say, I do, they are inseparably put together. God does it. You see, God's glue joint is stronger than the individual people. Individuals, remember, I talked about that in the beginning of the introduction. We're all flawed. We're all messed up. We're all sinners. All of us are messed up. We go and we do and we say and things that we have good intentions, but we blow it. All of us have done it. But you need to see that he says, hey, there are some real repercussions here. God glues us together. That glue is stronger. And then he stops. That's the end of his, he's done talking to the Pharisees. And he is, if you notice that, because verse 10 says, in the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. Now, it's interesting. Uh, years ago, when I was doing that I was part-time pastor, so that means it's 29 years ago. Um, in the evening when I was working my part-time woodworking stuff, I would listen to, a, and I'm not using any names, a, a guy that's very famous, I've said the name, you would all know it, he writes books and all that kind of stuff. As he was teaching, word by word, verse by verse, concept by concept through the book of Mark. Doing an excellent job, guy's smart as can be. Very knowledgeable about Greek and all this kind of stuff. And you know what? 
He was going right down there, and he's in Mark chapter 10, and he gets to these two verses, and I'm telling you, he just went like this, and then kept going. Totally acted like they weren't there. He hadn't done it any, because I was listening to for weeks on end. Didn't do that with any other passage of Scripture. You know why? Because if you deal with this, you have to deal with some reality that none of us really like to look at. I don't like... I don't, I don't even like dealing with it, but I know it's truth, and that's where I have to go. So you know my heart. My heart is I want to teach truth and let the chips fall where they may. But here's what it says. It says, and he said to them, that they're now questioning, it's like, man, this is, you know, what's going on here? And he says to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another, she is committing adultery. Now, the other places have husband and wife, only this one. So this has to be the one that Paul is referring to. Because in Jewish society, that wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't happen both directions. But to the Gentiles, that was a thing. Remember I've said many times, dealing with the Corinthian church is very much like dealing with the USA today. It just is that way. It's the way it is in the United States. It can come from either side. And so, uh, either person, either party, either spouse could initiate the divorce. So, he is saying, hey, these are the instructions the Lord gave. Okay? I'm simply going to reiterate that to the church. So, what does he say? And we're continuing on in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 now. So, we've looked at what the Lord instructed. That the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave... She must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not send his wife away. Notice what he says. And he says some very specific things here. He says, the wife shouldn't leave her husband. That's aorist tense. It simply means she should not make that once and done decision to leave. That's just not what she should do. But if she does, if she makes that choice to leave... It says that she must remain unmarried. The interesting thing is there, the word remain is a command. It's not, well, it'd be good if you remained unmarried. It's a command. That's what, what the scripture says. Uh, remain unmarried. Or, oh, there's, there's, there's another possibility. The other possibility is be reconciled to her husband. That also is a command. So he's saying divorce is a reality. Let's face it, some of you know that pain. I've been with some of you through that pain. I've never had anybody tell me, oh, this divorce is a breeze. In fact, there were a few people that said, well, this was an amiable divorce. That was that minute. A few days later, a few weeks later, the realities set in, and it was difficult. I've never seen one that was what people call amiable. I've never seen it yet. Maybe there is one someplace. I don't know, but I haven't seen it. But he says, you know what? If you do, and divorce, by the way, in the Bible, is never called sin. God said he hates it. And we'll, we'll look at that verse in a moment. He says he hates it. It is not his plan A. Plan A is two united together for one lifetime. Till death do us part, for example. But I'm well aware that divorce happens. I've seen it in front of my own eyes. I've understood why somebody says, for my own sanity, for my own able to even function, I got to get out of here. 
Okay? I never take that lightly, but I've, I've been through that with some people. Never take it lightly. But here's what I do know. It says, if you do make that choice, you have two choices after that. Remain single and celibate, remain unmarried, or be reconciled. I believe reconciliation is the preferred one, and you'll see why when we get to the end of this sermon, you'll see why I think it's the preferred one. But people, when I say, okay, if you get divorced, remember, you're not going to get married, but you're going to seek reconciliation. They normally roll their eyes. They got to go. They're like, you got to be kidding. I'm leaving them because this is a disaster. Why in the world would I ever go back? And I'm like, oh, no, you don't just one night say, hey, I'm going to go back. It would be a process. But the point is, the Bible is very clear. By the way, did you notice, I read this passage, there's no provision for remarriage here. Just like there was no provision for remarriage in Mark chapter 10. Now remember, what we said is, this is addressed to those that are married. So if you're here and you were remarried, this applies to you in your second marriage or whatever marriage it happens to be. This still applies to you. You are married in God's eyes, and you go, wow, the first marriage was a mistake, and we got divorced, and now I got remarried, and I found out this one was a mistake. Maybe I ought to get out of this one, too. No! Doesn't matter what, what your circumstances are. If you're married, you're married. This applies to you. So, if you go, well, I've been remarried, so how's this? Yes, this applies to you. You got remarried, you stay remarried. Fact is, next week, or the next time I preach on this, we're going to look at the whole concept that says whatever state you're in, whatever circumstances you're in, remain there. That's the, the biblical teaching. Again, um, then it says, and it turns around, and, and I, I, I find this to be interesting, because it addresses the wife leaving first, then it addresses the husband sending his wife away. We would normally think that would be the opposite. But in this case, it is dealing with it that way. By the way, the passage I was talking about, divorce, is uh, Malachi chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. But in particular, in verse 16, it simply says, I hate divorce. Why? Because God says, this indicates something isn't right. It's not his plan A. It's not his perfect plan for people. Let's face it. If you are not divorced, you absolutely know somebody that is. You know, if you're not remarried, you know that you know plenty of people that are. There, it is our society. It was the Corinthian society. It is what it is. But Paul had no problem saying, hey, here's the ideal. Here's where you want to go. This is the right direction. In fact, is in Malachi where he says he hates divorce. He uses the word treacherous three times. He says, you've been, treach- uh, you've been treacherously treating the wife of your youth. In other words, there's a deception that goes. You said, till death do us part. That you've taken a vow. And you're not following through on it. So is it God's plan? The answer is no. Is it the end of your life? And God will never use you? Absolutely not. Because if he wouldn't use you, then he's not going to use me. Not because of this. I've never been divorced and remarried. But it would be for plenty of other things. If you want to know, I'll tell you what they are. But I'm not going to 
sit up here and give a list of how nutsed up I am at times. You know, you, by the way, just look at your own set of problems and just put my name in there and we'll be okay. You know what? God uses cracked pots. But let's go to the next one. The next one is one where I teach, and I believe absolutely rightly so, because the Bible says we're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. By the way, when it said what God has yoked together, let no one separate. The word yoke, as you know, has nothing to do with the chicken, the, oh, I'm sorry, the, the middle of a chicken egg or any other egg. It is a yoke like oxen. It takes two oxen, two heads, two necks in the yoke for it to be of any good. You take one out, it's not just half a load. The thing falls down, trips up the other oxen. It's bad. So when it says you're yoked together, you're yoked together. But it also tells us that we're not to be unequally yoked. I've had to say no to a number of marriages over the years because someone wanted to marry, a believer wanted to marry an unbeliever. And I'm like, no, I can't do that because I would have to violate scriptural principle. But what if, what if the question comes up and it's a real question, you may be in this circumstance, I've dealt with plenty of people that are, is, well, we were both unsaved when we got married, no big deal, but I got saved, my spouse didn't. Maybe it would be better off, I could serve the Lord better, if I dumped my spouse and went on and served the Lord single. This is going to say no. Uh, it could be that you were disobedient and actually entered into an unequal yoke. And now you're wanting to serve the Lord and the other person feels, you feel like the other person's dragging you down. What do you do with this? How do you deal with an unequal yoke? A believer married to an unbeliever. That's the next thing that he addresses. Guess what? In Corinth, that would have been a big problem. Because they were, by and large, worldly pagans, idolaters, immoral, and all those kinds of things. So you can imagine that there was a lot of that kind of thing. Somebody would get saved, the husband or the wife, and the... The other spouse says, I want nothing to do with your salvation, your God, your Jesus Christ. Well, maybe I should dump them. The answer is, no, not a chance. In fact, is picking up at verse 12. Sorry, I need to go ahead. Um, he is going to give new instructions. Jesus Christ did not address this subject. That's all it says in verse 12. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord. He's not saying, I'm making up my own rules here. He's just saying the opposite of what he had said before. The Lord had dealt with this one before, Mark chapter 10. He says, this is something new. The Lord never actually dealt with this subject, but I'm telling you now. It says, that if any brother that is a Christian has a wife who is an unbeliever, obviously she's not born again, and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. The the thing that's said here is if she continues to say, you know what, I don't care if you're a Christian or not, um, I will continue in this marriage. You are absolutely forbidden, it's a command, not to send her away, not to divorce her. Here's the way I look at it. By the way, we're going to see the flip side of this in a moment. And I've had to deal with this one. And I've told plenty of people this. And I will continue to do it. You know what? I'm not going to tell you you have an easy circumstance. 
because it's a tough one. All of these things that, that are not according to God's plan, they're all tough. They're, none of them are sunshine land. Living with an unbeliever is not a, a fun thing at times. But here's what I will tell you. You have a one family mission field. I know that because I've read the rest of the scripture. It says that you're going to have an influence there. You are not initiating getting rid of the other person. They, well, okay, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Verse 13, and a woman who has an unbelieving husband, if he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. Again, it's a command. You don't do that. Why? Verse 14, now I'm back to where I was. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. Oh, you have been left as a testimony. You make a difference. You see, if you're a believer, your life should be radically different than an unbeliever's. You represent Jesus Christ. The word sanctify simply means holy, set apart to God from sin. To God. You are an influence. You're the light in that circumstance. In fact, is it not only says that about the husband or the wife, it also says that dealing with the children, continuing on. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they're holy. Doesn't mean they've gotten saved. It doesn't mean your spouse is necessarily going to get saved. Here's what it does mean: is you have an ongoing testimony in that family to the spouse, and you are a testimony and a guidance to any children that you have. That's what it's saying here. They are now holy. They're set apart. Set apart because they now have a godly influence. And yes, no matter how bad the circumstances are, we are to live a godly, holy life. And that is going to have an impact on those that are around us. Now, verse 15 gives us the rest of the story. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such case, cases, but God has called us to peace. Notice what it says. The believer is not initiating a divorce, a separation. But if the unbeliever says, I can't stand to live with you, I went out of here. You don't beg, you don't plead, you don't want them to leave, that's not what it's saying. But you are not begging and pleading and making false promises, uh, I'll do anything if you stay. That's not what it says. It is saying if they choose in and of themselves, and that's the way it's written in Greek, if they choose in and of themselves to leave, you are commanded to allow them to leave. I'll tell you what, think that went through for a while, because it's saying, I have to be the, the shining light. And pretty much they can do whatever. That's why the Bible could never call divorce sin. Because this person, if the unbeliever divorces them, they would be a divorced person. And you'd be assigning sin to them, even though they did nothing wrong. So you cannot call divorce sin. It's just the way it works. You have to put everything together. And then it says, the brother or sister is not under bondage. But God has called us to peace. There are many people that say, see, if, the if I was married to an unbeliever and they leave, uh, then I can go get remarried because I'm not under bondage. Okay, that word bondage is used other places to deal with marriage. That is true, absolutely. But guess what? The context here has nothing whatsoever to do with remarriage. 
has to do with two things. It has to do with divorce and peace. Not marriage, not remarriage. It only has to do with divorce and peace. And I can verify that for the last, by the last verse. But it says he's called us to peace. Here's what happens. The person leaves. The unbeliever leaves. Now I live in guilt. I'm a horrible person. Maybe I didn't do the right thing. You live in guilt the rest of your life. The answer is no. He says he's called you to peace, to harmony. You've been divorced. Not by your own choice. You've been divorced. But... God says you can still live a peaceful life. You don't have to go around, maybe I'm guilty. And and with all that burden on you. That's what he's getting at. In fact is, like I already said, it is, I'm not living in guilt because I'm at peace. I'm not going around like I'm a second class citizen. By the way, I've told many people, and I'll I'll say it from the pulpit, I don't know if they're... I don't treat divorced and remarried people as second-class citizens. There are consequences. There's no doubt about that. But there's consequences for all kinds of things. The point is, I don't need, and you should not, whatever circumstance you're in, you live for the Lord. You don't live in the guilt. You don't live in bondage to the past. Serve the Lord with a whole heart now. Bottom line. And how do I know what verifies what I've just said? Verse 16. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Here's the, here's the bottom line, what I believe this is saying. This is probably the toughest of all these verses. Simply this. If they leave and I remain strong in the Lord and the power of his might, guess what? That is a testimony beyond anything anyone could ever do. It is. By the way, it's all future tense. It doesn't happen the next day. It's future. As I need to continue to serve the Lord, to put the Lord first in my life, because I can have that influence. Remember, if they choose to stay, you have an influence with the husband or the wife or the children. And even if they leave, you are still to have that influence. The word save has to do with not necessarily that they're going to be born again. Could be. That's a possibility, a real possibility. But also, it also means to deliver or to preserve. Because you still, if you don't go get remarried, you still have that opportunity to, and here's why I said I believe reconciliation is the the preferred thing, is you still have that opportunity to preserve that marriage. Did I say that this was an easy sermon? If I did, I lied to you. (laughs) Because all of us have emotions involved in this. I know that. I talk to people all the time. And they'll say, I agree with you. But in reality, they say something really different in other circumstances. It's tough. Nobody said that this is an easy chapter. There's a few things in here that don't get any easier. This This is probably the hardest one. But here's the bottom line. God forgives sin. God isn't stopped, by, stopped in his working in our lives because we've done something wrong. We live in a circumstance that is less than ideal. God is a God that is in the process because of the blood of Jesus Christ. There is power in the blood 
of forgiving people, saving people, using people in spite of themselves or what they've done or what they haven't done or any of those things. And I want that to be clear. Do I take a stand on what I've just said? The answer is any of you that ever talked to me know that I haven't varied from that. I, I believe this long before I was a pastor. In 29 years, I haven't had to change. By the way, I have gone back and said, Lord, you would make my life so much easier if you showed me I was wrong in my view here. I've literally done that. And every time I sat down to, to see if I could get an out, he gave me one more reason for going this direction. And it's still, even studying for here, I, I, I came up with, I found some things that I had never even seen before. The point is, this doesn't make my job easy. And it really doesn't. And it causes bad feelings at times. It's never what I want. That's never what you should want. But here's what I know. We have a loving, caring, forgiving God. He uses us, and it's going to make this clearer as we go on the chapter. He uses us right where we are. Oh, we need to be right with Him. Don't, don't X that out. We need to be right with Him. But He wants to use you, no matter what has happened. Because that's what Christ has made possible. All of us deserve hell. All of us deserve separation from God. All of us deserve punishment and judgment and all those things. We all deserve that. But in His grace and in His love and specifically seen in His work on the cross, sin is dealt with. He is forgiven, if we confess it, the guilt of all of our sins. So don't sit there and go, well, I blew it, so I guess I can't do it. No! Absolutely do not do that. That is the opposite of what I'm telling you. But from this day forward, say, I'm going to serve the Lord with my full heart. I am going to look forward, and I'm not looking back. I'm moving forward. That's where I'm going with this whole thing. That's what I believe. That's what I believe I practice. Uh, and I want you to look at that and say, yeah, not everything's right. This is not a rosy world. This is not a great, fun picture. This is not a fun subject. There's none of those things. But you know what? God wants to use His people. If you're not born again, this doesn't really apply. You need to trust Christ as your Savior. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, He wants you to grow and mature and be strong in the Lord and be used in ministering to other people. And yes, even the mistakes and the sins and the wrong things from the past can be a part of that ministry. Because, and many people have said, I've blown it in whatever reason. You need somebody to talk to, you, you have somebody that needs somebody to talk to, tell them to come and talk to me. I will tell them where this leads. And I will tell them what a merciful, gracious, loving, caring, forgiving God we have. That's the truth. Let's all stand together. As we close. Father, thank you so much for being straightforward with us. You, you, don't, you don't pull any punches. You tell it why it is. Lord, that doesn't always make it easy in life. But Lord, we also know the rest of the story. Thank you. Thank you so much for caring for us. Providing for us. Dying for us rising so that we could have resurrection life, that we could move forward. We shake the world 
regardless of what our past was. Lord, I pray that we would leave here encouraged to serve you to the fullest, regardless of what's happened in the past. Lord, thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. Go with God and be a blessing to someone else.